Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. This is, this is our day. This is our liberation day. This is our independence day. This is our day of days. This is the day when everything changes, everything shifts, everything is different. This is the day of revolution. Christ is risen. He is risen today. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the defining issue of Christianity, of, of our faith. It is the, it is the, the essential line. That Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. Throughout the centuries, there have often been people who've wanted to describe the resurrection in kind of spiritual, metaphorical terms to say things like, well, it doesn't really matter whether it happened literally, physically, it's this kind of spiritual principle. That's not at all what uh, the gospel writers describe and explain. There's a physical, a literal resurrection of Christ from the grave. That's why everybody was surprised. As you read the gospel accounts, as you read in Luke, as we're about to do, as you read in other parts of the Bible about the resurrection of Jesus, the reason that people were surprised was because something actually happened. This isn't just an idea. It's not just a metaphor. It's not just a concept. It's not a spiritual principle. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. This is the dividing line, the defining line of Christianity. It's the, it's the ground on which we stand. When the Apostle Paul was on trial, reading Acts 23, he says, it's on this ground that I stand, the resurrection from the dead. This isn't just an idea that we take our stand on. It's not a metaphor we put our feet on. This is a defining moment. This was a literal, a physical, a tangible thing that happened, that Christ was dead and Christ is now alive. He beat the grave He's risen from, the, risen from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us that death is not the last word for us. There's compelling evidence of the power of death. We see it all around us. We know that we all die. Everyone dies. The evidence of death's power, the evidence of death's tyranny is strong and compelling except for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has beaten death, because Jesus rose from the grave, we can see that the tyranny of death is not complete. It's not total. Actually, it's been defeated and broken. And at the moment, there's only one man who has escaped fully the clutches of death's power. But because he has escaped it, he is the sign that we also shall escape the clutches of death's power. The tyrant's power has been broken. Death has been defeated in the death of Christ. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's turn to the scripture and read about this defining thing for us. We're in Luke 24. We're picking up right from where we left off on Friday. For those of you who are here for our Good Friday service, on Friday we spent an hour reading through the account of the trial and suffering and crucifixion of Jesus and uh, paused at that moment of Christ in the tomb and the women waiting to anoint his body but pausing, resting on the Sabbath day, and we pick it up in Luke chapter 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, 
Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping, And looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. In this story, we see a kind of collision of the the mundane and of the extraordinary. There's the, the mundane of attending a tomb and the extraordinary of the tomb being empty. And what we see in this initial account of the resurrection is the uh, the preciousness of Jesus, that he's dead, but he's still precious. And these women want to go and anoint his body with spices and ointments. And you can tell a lot about um, a society by the way a society treats its dead. The way that people treat their dead tells you a lot about how people regard the living. And Jesus is dead, but these women still care about him. It's not only a husk, but this is a human which still deserves respect and care and attention. Kind of modern worldview would regard the body as, as unessential, really, and that when you die, it's well, like an old piece of redundant computer hardware which the software has been removed from, and you can do nothing with the hardware except get rid of it and throw it out. It has no intrinsic value. It's redundant. It's obsolete. And uh, even those of us who are Christians can fall into that kind of very secular, actually very Gnostic way of thinking. We can almost think it's spiritual to kind of regard the body as of no consequence. We talk about the soul escaping the body. That actually isn't Christianity. That's a kind of technologically driven, Gnostic, ungodly approach, understanding of what the body is. The body doesn't escape. The soul doesn't escape the body. When we die, yes, the soul leaves the body, but the soul is waiting to be re-embodied. That's the whole point. That's the point of resurrection. We're looking for embodied life, not a soul taken from the body and floating around unembodied. No, the soul is embodied. We're flesh and blood. And the body matters, and these women go to anoint the body. They are anointing in hope of resurrection. We care about the body because we believe that resurrection is coming. But Jesus is dead. And so they go to anoint the body. They go to anoint the body to cover over the inevitable stink of death that will come. But when I get to the tomb, when they go to do this, Ordinary things, so far, so Jewish, so Middle Eastern, go and anoint the body. When they get to the tomb, the extraordinary has happened that the stone has been rolled away. And then two men appear before them, and they're described as men here, but we know that they're angels. We know they're angels both from the description of them being dazzling, and we also know they're angels because a little bit later in the story they're described as angels. These angels appear to the women, and they ask this question, why do you seek the living Amongst the dead. 
And in asking this question, the, the angels are, are posing a question to the women, which is actually very similar to a question that Jesus, a few days before, has posed to a skeptical group of establishment leaders, the Sadducees. The Sadducees, the most educated and sophisticated group of Jewish leaders in that time, in that context, who had come to him with a question about what happens when a woman who's been married seven times dies. And it's a skeptical question they ask because they don't believe in resurrection life. And Jesus rebukes them and he says, God is not God of the dead, he is God of the living. He's God of the living. And here a few days later, the angel says to the women, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? Now, the Sadducees had a hard-bitten, cynical approach to resurrection life. They didn't think resurrection was going to happen. They thought it's, this life is what it is. You live now, and then you die, and that is it. Then it's essentially emptiness. It's nothingness after that. They had a, a cynical approach, a dismissive attitude towards the resurrection. The women who came to anoint Jesus, they had a different approach. They believed in resurrection, but they weren't really expecting it. And the angel say to them, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? Resurrection has happened, just as Jesus told you it would. Now, I wonder where you are on this spectrum of disbelief and belief about the resurrection. Are you more at the Sadducee end of the scale, where there's a kind of a hard-hearted rejection, an incomprehending sense of resurrection just can't happen. Surely we are just like obsolete computer equipment when we die. We just get thrown onto the scrap heap and it's nothingness. The software has departed and nothing is left. Or perhaps more likely more of us would be more where those women are, that we assent to the idea of resurrection, but were it to happen, we'd be caught completely by surprise would be amazed. And this is a question which actually affects all of life, the way that we understand resurrection, the degree to which we believe it and receive it and live in anticipation of it, affects hugely how we live now. Living with the hope of resurrection, with a sure and certain confidence that Christ is raised from the dead and so will we, will we be, changes the way we think about all of life now changes everything. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, 
O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. In this part of the story, we again see the mundane and the extraordinary colliding. There's a very mundane of Cleopas and his friend walking from Jerusalem back to their village of Emmaus, and then the extraordinary happens as Jesus appears before them, but they don't recognize who he is. It's Jesus, but they don't recognize who it is. Their eyes are closed. It is Jesus risen from the dead, and they don't see who it is. And Jesus turns to the scriptures. He opens the Bible and begins to talk about how the scriptures describe all that was going to happen and all that has happened and who he is. And when it says that he turns to the scriptures, the prophets, and all, all the scriptures, there are specific scriptures, of course, which we can look to. This morning, Richard already has referenced Psalm 22, or you might think of Isaiah 53, or other scriptures which describe circumstances of Christ's birth and life and death very accurately. But it's more than that. It's all the scriptures, the whole thing, the whole story points to Jesus and tells of what is going to happen to him and what he is going to do and who he is. It's all about him. And so Jesus opens up all the scriptures to clear past his friends. And it's fascinating that Jesus does that. He doesn't, this is Jesus risen from the dead, but Jesus doesn't do magic tricks. He actually He doesn't even do what he did before he was crucified. He doesn't do the miracles that he did before he was crucified. He he doesn't cause stones along the side of the road to start levitating as a bit of an indicator that something different is happening now. He doesn't magic up a flying carpet to carry them to Emmaus in double quick time. What he does is open the scriptures and show them how all the scriptures describe everything that was going to happen just as it has happened. He begins to pull the threads together, and Cleopas and his companion actually themselves are unwitting participants in the threads of the story coming together. Cleopas says to Jesus, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. When uh, Cleopas says that, he's actually kind of rephrasing something which was said about Jesus right at the beginning of his life. We read in the account of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2 how Mary and Joseph took him to the temple and a devout man named Simeon was there waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus... To do for him according to the custom of the law, he took 
him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon holds Jesus and he says, I've seen it. I've seen now salvation. I've seen the hope of Israel here, flesh and blood. And 30 or so years later, Cleopas and his friends stand with Jesus, raised from the dead on the road, and say, we had hoped that he was going to be the savior of Israel. We had hoped. Simeon had seen it. Jesus begins to pull the threads together for what Cleopas and his friends do not yet see. Well, think about also the parallel just a few years later when Jesus was a 12-year-old boy. And we, again in Luke 2, read about how his parents took him to the temple at a time of the feast of the Passover, Passover uh, those years before this Passover. And they travel back to their hometown after the feast and don't realize Jesus isn't with them. And then they go back in a frantic panic to Jerusalem. Where's our boy? Where is he? And it says in Luke 2:48, Mary says to him, Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Just as Cleopas and his friend and the disciples are in great distress because Jesus has died. And Jesus says to Mary, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And Jesus says to Cleopas and his friends, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus keeps taking people by surprise. Mary says to him, what are you doing here in the temple? Where else would I be? I have to be in my father's house. Cleopas says, we'd hope that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. And Jesus says, of course I had to suffer. Of course I had to die. This is what the scriptures always said. The threads are being pulled together. And then they still don't see who Jesus is. And so he takes them back even further in the story as they sit down for a meal together. And so much happens at mealtimes. Meals are significant moments. We can skip over our meals. They can just be snatch-and-go moments. But so often stuff does happen at mealtimes. I know in my own family and with my friends, it often is that moment of a mealtime when something happens, when that conversation will suddenly open up. There'll suddenly be that moment of connection. There'll suddenly be that thing which gets revealed, that kind of heart connection as you eat together. So much happens at meals. And a few days before this, Jesus had a meal with his disciples. He'd broken bread. He'd inaugurated the new covenant with them. He'd said, I'm going to die. This bread is like my body and this wine is like my blood. It's for you. A new thing is happening. And here he sits down for a meal with Cleopas and his friend. And again, he takes bread and he breaks it. And it's like the first meal in reverse. The first meal that the Bible describes for us is when Adam and Eve ate what they were not meant to eat. It's the first time in the Bible, in Genesis 3, we see people eating stuff. And they take what they're not meant to take and they eat it. And in Genesis 3-7, it says, their eyes were opened. And here, as Jesus takes the bread and blesses it and breaks it and hands it to Cleopas and his friend, it says, their eyes were opened. Same thing happens. Genesis 3, Luke 24, their eyes were opened. 
Now, at that first meal, when Adam and Eve had their eyes opened, their eyes were opened to suddenly see how exposed they were before God. They suddenly saw that they were standing naked before God, uncovered before Him, and they were afraid and they hid. And that was the beginning of the unraveling of the human story. It was the entry of sin. It was the entry of pain. It was the entry of chaos. It was the entry of sickness and the entry of death. They saw and everything went wrong. Now Jesus hands the bread to Cleopas and his friend and their eyes are opened and they see. And now this is not the seeing of exposure. This is the seeing of coming into the presence of God. This is a new creation. This is resurrection day. This is liberation day. This is revolution day. Everything has changed. Now they see who Jesus is. This one who's welcomed them and embraced them. Rather than hiding from God, they can come into the presence of God. Everything gets flipped around by Jesus, just as the scriptures said that it would. And if you ever feel exposed, you feel that sense of guilt, that sense of shame, that sense of being uncovered, the way out of that is to come to God. Because now through Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, we don't have to hide from God, but we can run to him as he has run to us. And rather than being exposed and naked before him, he covers us in his righteousness and declares us to be his and adopts us as his children and accepts us and embraces us and welcomes us and calls us his own. And the eyes of Cleopas and his friends suddenly open and they see this. And they go rushing back to Jerusalem. The scriptures have been fulfilled. What Israel's scriptures had always told had come to pass. Jesus is alive. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood amongst them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit, a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his Feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you here anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and they said, he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. We uh, see... In this part of the story, the disciples are expressing both belief and unbelief. Belief and disbelief in what is happening. And there's something kind of comforting to me in this, that the disciples should both believe and fail to believe. Because I know there are times when I believe, and yet it's hard to believe. 
And so there's something comforting about the disciples' own belief mingled with disbelief. But there's, of course, nothing commendable about disbelief. There's nothing commendable about a lack of belief. And Jesus is going to correct their lack of belief so that they believe fully. And there's a real irony here that when Cleopas and his friend get back to Jerusalem and meet the disciples, they're all saying, the Lord is risen. He has risen. And then when Jesus appears amongst them, they all say, it's a ghost, it's a ghost. Belief and disbelief tied up together. But of course, the disbelief of the disciples when Jesus appears is, is unsurprising because Jesus has appeared out of thin air. And that's not what people do, that's what ghosts do. People don't just suddenly appear in the middle of rooms. People have to use doors and walk upstairs and turn door handles and make their make their presence felt by the footsteps and the floorboards. Ghosts suddenly appear in the middle of rooms with no prior announcement and no invitation and no by your leave. And Jesus suddenly is standing among them and it's a ghost. Jesus is risen. It's a ghost. And Jesus says to them, touch me. Touch me. Feel me. This is real body. This is real flesh and blood. This is, this is not, this is real. Touch my body. Feel me. Know me. There's a beating heart. There's warm blood. This, there's no stink of death about me. I'm not a zombie. I'm not a ghost. I'm real. I'm raised from the grave. Give me something to eat. Ghosts don't eat bits of fish. Let me eat amongst you and show you the reality of my physical humanity. Jesus is raised from the dead physically, literally, tangibly, solidly. He is a human being. He's a man. He's flesh and blood. He's physical. And yet he's also transphysical because now Jesus can appear at will. He doesn't have to use the door. He can suddenly appear in the middle of a room. He doesn't have to walk up, on the ste- up the steps. He doesn't have to turn the door handle. He can appear wherever he wants, whenever he wants. Jesus is physical, but he's transphysical. He's the same, but he's different. He's a man, but he's God. Everything has changed. And he stands amongst them, this flesh and blood God-man, and he invites them to touch his hands, and he eats some fish amongst them. And then he begins again to speak from the Bible, from the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and describes to them again how all the scriptures speak about him and how all these scriptures must be fulfilled and have been fulfilled in him. Thus it's written, he says. I told you these things would happen. Why are you surprised? And you know, the story could end right here. This is a good place for the final credits to roll and for the story to finish. It's a place where it could all end. Jesus has been raised from the dead. God has been united with man. The disciples, suddenly their disbelief has turned to wonderful belief. Great place to finish a story. But it doesn't finish there. There is There's more to come. The promise of the Father is still to be received. Jesus' physical and transphysical, Jesus can appear anywhere that he wants, but Jesus in his physical body can only appear in one place at once. 
He's with the disciples in that room. He's nowhere else at that moment. He's physically present with them. And Jesus says something more is going to come. I've been raised from the dead. The scripture's been fulfilled, but there's more of the scripture to be fulfilled. There's, there's the promise of the Father. There's the empowering of the Holy Spirit that is to come to you. And what is going to happen is that the disciples are going to receive power from God, and the disciples are themselves going to become the body of Christ. That Jesus has been raised from the dead, flesh and blood, beating heart. But his people now become his body on the earth. And where Jesus can only be in one place at one time, his people can fill the earth. His body can fill the earth. That all the earth might see who he is. And his people will do this when they are clothed with power from on high, when they receive the promise of the Father. The body of Christ will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's still to come. That's the next chapter in the story. We pause here at this point of the resurrected Christ, standing with his disciples, talking with them, eating them, showing them, that he's real, that he's alive from the dead. And we pause here on the resurrection day, reminding ourselves that this is our day. This is our liberation day. This is our freedom day. This is our independence day. This is our revolution day. It's our day. And so we break bread and wine in remembrance of him, as he told us to do. And we break bread and we take the wine in remembrance with our eyes opened. Not with our eyes closed anymore, not unable to see him, but seeing him feel who he is. Seeing him as the one who has made reconciliation between God and man. That we have been brought into relationship with the Father, that we're welcomed and embraced. Seeing that this is the day which spells the end of the tyranny of death. There is a man who has escaped death. He's shown it up. He's shown its limitations. He's shown its weakness. He's shown the finality of death, that it will end. And this is the day of new creation, that everything has changed. Spring has come, the flowers are bursting forth, life is appearing. This is the day of new creation, death is defeated and life has burst forth. We stand here in the power of the resurrection, we stand here in its certainty and all that means for us now and forever. Death has been killed by Jesus on the cross he lives. He was dead, but he is a, he's alive. Without the resurrection, Jesus would just be another mystical figure from the East. None of us would even know about. We wouldn't even know. The other stuff, the virgin birth, the miracles, all the things he did, we wouldn't even think about those. They'd just be legends in history. The resurrection is a thing which makes it all make sense. The resurrection is a fulfillment of Scripture. The resurrection is the ground on which we stand. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Jesus, we take our stand on this ground today. We, Lord, believe with open eyes. We see you and know that you have defeated death, that its tyranny is broken and shattered. And though we still experience its power now. We know that its power is demolished and we shall be raised to new life in you. That like you, we shall 
share in eternal glory. We shall share in your eternal glory. And thank you, Lord, that we are now your body to fill the earth with the good news as your witnesses, as those who've had our eyes opened to see the truth of who God is and what he's done. And so I pray today we might celebrate together this new creation, this new birth which we've experienced, this new life which you've poured out on us, that Jesus, the power of your resurrection life will be evident in us. We might know its power and live according to it, now and forever. Amen.